In April of 2022, the German intelligence service claimed that Signals Intercept confirmed that the Russian-sponsored quasi-mercenary organization, commonly known as the Wagner Group, had operated north of Kiev and may have been involved in the atrocities at Bucha. In fact, as early as March 8th, Ukrainian intelligence collected ID tags from fallen fighters in that area, tags that were consistent with those used by the Wagner Group in Syria and elsewhere. But who are these Russian mercenaries, and how are they used as a component of the military element of national power? That is the subject of this episode of The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare. Welcome to The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare. I'm Chris Mayer, retired U.S. Cavalry Colonel, and at one time anyway, instructor of the U.S. Army's Command and General Staff College and the Naval War College. This series of podcasts introduces enduring lessons of war, not so much for those who study war as a profession, but for anyone who wants to fulfill their role as informed citizens in our country's deliberations about war and peace, and particularly now, when the world is facing war again. As I mentioned previously, the military element of national power is far more than just regular military forces in combat. The previous two episodes describe the use of militias by Ukraine and Russia, which can provide a model for how different forms of militias continue to be relevant elsewhere. Today, I will move from militias to mercenaries. Now, I already described mercenaries, and particularly Russia's use of mercenary or quasi-mercenary organizations. That was back in episodes 2, 4, and 6 of The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare. These are among the most listened to podcasts in this series, and I recommend going back to those for a better look at Russia's mercenaries. Instead of repeating information from those podcasts, I will look at Russia's use of mercenaries in Ukraine, that is, in the context of a conventional war where the country using mercenaries is an open party to the conflict. To avoid confusion, I'm going to use the term mercenary very broadly, rather than in the very restrictive and very unhelpful way used in several international conventions. For the purpose of this discussion, a mercenary is someone who is paid to fight in an armed conflict who is not a member of the armed forces of a state that is a party to the conflict. So, members of the International Legion for the Defense of Ukraine are not mercenaries because they enlist in the Ukrainian armed forces. In the last episode, I said that mercenaries are used for several reasons. The most prominent of these is to provide capabilities that the hiring state doesn't have and to avoid accountability for that state participating in armed conflict. Now, capabilities could refer to technical capabilities such as employing an advanced technology in combat or providing tactical leadership for military forces in combat while training small unit leaders or staff officers or simply providing troops and armaments when the hiring nation does not have enough of its own. An example would be the Flying Tigers in China in World War II. They provided skilled pilots and airplanes the Chinese didn't have. They also allowed the United States to materially aid China in defending itself from Japanese invasion while the United States was still technically neutral. Now, I'm not drawing any similarities between the Flying Tigers and Russia's Wagner Group except to note that Russian quasi-mercenary organizations fulfill the same purposes for Russia, whether in Russia's original invasion of Ukraine in 2014 or later in Syria and Africa. They provided a capability Russia needed, that is, expeditionary warfare, while giving Russia a pretense of deniability that Russia was conducting military operations in these countries. 
From 2015 until earlier this year, Russian mercenaries conducted low-level combat operations against Ukrainian armed forces in the Donbass region, as well as training and mentoring pro-Russian separatist militias, all while allowing Moscow to deny that any Russian military forces were involved. That was then. Why does Moscow see the need to continue mercenary operations now when Russian armed forces are openly fighting? Certainly, hiding behind mercenaries doesn't seem to be necessary, and any combat skills various Russian mercenaries may offer must certainly be available in Russian special operations forces. So why use mercenaries? Well, Putin and his military chief of staff, General Garazimov, aren't saying, so here is my best speculation. As with militias, the matryoshka, the nested Russian doll, may help describe Russia's use of mercenaries. The outside shell, the babushka doll, holds everything else inside. For the use of mercenaries, that outer shell is providing capabilities the hiring state does not have. I don't believe that Russian mercenaries possess any skills or abilities that Spetsnaz or the GRU, that is, Russian Special Forces or Military Intelligence, do not have and those Russian forces can certainly do those things better. However, as I said in the previous episode, the Russians are using pro-Russian militias as the main combat force in eastern Ukraine. Those pro-Russian militias need the specialized combat abilities, training, and leadership that Wagner-type mercenaries can provide. Within the Babushkadal is the illusion that the war in eastern Ukraine is a fight for freedom by the people of Donbass against Ukrainian oppressors. This fairy tale doll is the image that Putin continues to present to the people of Russia. Related to that illusion is a third doll, another capability both militias and mercenaries provide, raw manpower. Now, it seems strange to think that Russia doesn't have enough manpower to win a war in Ukraine and that must rely on foreign mercenaries. Strange as it sounds, there is an element of truth to it. Russia may have already committed two-thirds to three-quarters of its forces available without reserve mobilization, and they've lost a quarter or more of that. These losses may include more than 20,000 Russian soldiers killed and many more wounded. Russian reserves may add up to about 3 million men. However, calling them up in anything short of a war for national survival is politically unacceptable. It may be that Moscow has decided it is more cost-effective for Chechens, Syrians, and Africans to be sent to face Ukrainian guns than to lose more Russian citizens, citizens who have mothers and other family who are already demanding an accounting. When we open that doll, we find the next shell, lack of accountability or avoiding responsibility. On the surface, we can see that, in addition to avoiding accountability for casualties, Moscow can also avoid responsibility for any tactical defeats suffered by the mercenary or mercenary-led forces. This would include special operations such as sabotage and assassination, whether those operations are unsuccessful or successful. This leads to the final and very ugly doll, the black heart of the matter and true value of these mercenary forces, whether Wagner-type or foreign mercenaries. That value is avoiding accountability for the things mercenaries do at the specific direction of Moscow. These things include war crimes, other violations of the laws and customs of war, even actions perpetrated against their own troops. If Moscow can fix the blame on mercenaries, claiming that they did not fall under Russian military command, then Moscow could also maybe avoid charges of a systemic pattern of war crimes 
that could justify charges of crimes against humanity. Russian quasi-mercenary forces have been accused of war crime violations in Donbass since 2015 and anywhere they've operated, including Syria, the Central African Republic, Libya, and more recently Mali. These crimes do not seem to result from a lack of military discipline among these mercenaries, but from a deliberate tactic to terrorize the local population into submission. Russia denies that its soldiers have committed any violations, trying to shift the blame to Ukrainian attacks on their own population staged events, or other fake news. Since Moscow denies the presence of these mercenaries in Ukraine, they can also deny responsibility for anything their mercenaries do. Perhaps we will see Moscow blame mercenaries, calling them unauthorized international volunteers, for crimes committed by Russian regular troops or pro-Russian militias. Another use of mercenaries to avoid accountability would be so-called false flag operations, where Wagner-type forces would infiltrate into an area and create an incident that would be attributed to the Ukrainian forces. So far, although there have been claims that Wagner-type forces have embarked on such false flag operations, they have not yet materialized. To understand the real threat posed by these mercenary forces, we have to go back to the purposes of the law of war and what the law of war says about who can fight. As introduced in the two previous episodes, the purpose of the law of war is to preserve the professionalism and humanity of combatants, facilitating the restoration of peace. Central to that is defining who is a legitimate combatant, that is, who can fight. Regardless of the label used for these irregular fighters, whether mercenary, auxiliary, private military company, or any variation of these, they are not legitimate combatants under the law of war. Why? Well, first, Russian mercenaries are not officially under the command of an officer responsible for the actions of his or her subordinates, at least not officially to the point of court-martial. In fact, as we have repeatedly seen since 2014 in Ukraine, Syria, Africa, and again in Ukraine, Russia denies any responsibility for the actions of these mercenary and mercenary-like units. With this lack of responsibility comes a sense of impunity by the mercenaries themselves. War crimes such as murder, taking and killing of hostages, looting and wanton destruction of property not only become allowable, they may also be part of a deliberate policy of the state using these forces. The second part of the overarching purpose of the law of war is to facilitate the restoration of peace. Criminal actions including war crimes and crimes against humanity will generate hatred and a spirit of revenge among the Ukrainian people which will certainly harm any prospects for a just and lasting peace. Even worse, if they see that such actions go unpunished, are systemic, or ignored by the international community, then it could encourage war crimes on the pro-Ukrainian government side as a substitute for true justice. At first, we can expect these to be limited to acts by the civilian population. A pattern of war crimes, unacknowledged and denied, will eventually erode the discipline of even regular forces, leading to war crimes being committed by both sides, further eroding any possibility for a swift, just, and lasting peace. The situation in Ukraine, however, is only one example of the use of mercenaries as one aspect of the military element of national power. Using my definition at the beginning of this podcast, we can see mercenary activity in several areas of the world. Most notable may be the United Arab Emirates. They hire foreign soldiers to fight in Yemen, to train anti-piracy forces on the Horn of Africa, and even to train and lead their own regular military forces. 
Turkey used mercenaries in the recent conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan, as did Russia for the other side in that conflict. On the other hand, there are also regularly organized and incorporated private military companies like STEP International, Executive Outcomes, and Dyke Advisory Group in Africa. The difference between these regularly incorporated private military companies and quasi-mercenary organizations like Wagner is that the personnel of these private military companies are integrated into the armed forces of the country that hires them, they strictly comply with the terms of their contracts, and they abide by the relevant laws of war and train the armed forces they are working with to do the same. So whenever we ask anything about mercenaries, we must be very careful about what we mean by a mercenary and the problems they cause. But what can we do about the problems they cause? As I described in those earlier episodes, persons alleged to control Wagner have been under economic sanction by the U.S. since 2017 and by the EU since last year. This doesn't seem to have had much of an effect on their activity. War crimes, however, have extraterritorial jurisdiction. This means that someone accused of a war crime can be tried in any country. So captured Wagner operatives can be tried in Ukraine, by the ICC, or elsewhere for their war crimes. Since these mercenaries are not legitimate combatants under the law of war, if they are captured by Ukraine, they could be tried for any death or destruction of property these persons may have committed in Ukraine under civilian law. That said, as with any other crime or criminal act in a combat zone, it's very difficult to be able to prove that any one person committed such a crime. Today, however, with the massive amounts of imagery and signals broadcast from the combat zones, it might be easier to identify specific individuals and tie them to specific acts. It might even be easier to convict the leaders of these mercenary bands for widespread abuses committed by those forces, if they fall into the custody of Ukraine or other countries supporting war crimes investigations. In summary, Russia uses mercenaries in Ukraine for similar reasons that mercenaries have been used anywhere at any time. They provide capabilities the regular forces may not have, and they provide deniability and lack of accountability for the state that is using the mercenaries. These mercenaries can be tried for war crimes by any country that apprehends them. Past experience, however, indicates that proving guilt is difficult. We can hope that new capabilities in imagery and signals intercept will change that and eliminate lack of accountability as a reason to use mercenaries. In the next episode, I will move away from combat and describe how the military element of national power is used outside of war. And once again, Ukraine provides concrete examples next time on the Ancient Art of Modern Warfare.